Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It's my great pleasure to welcome Chaviv Gur to our, our program today. Chaviv is a political, as a political analyst, is a political correspondent for the Times of Israel, but more importantly, he's one of those voices that we in America read all of the time, not only because how much he writes, but because of his insights within what he writes. Uh, he had been formerly the director of communications at Jaffe for the Jewish Agency back in 2005, 2010. And he is a name that I've recognized for a long time. And so it's a great pleasure to have you with us, Chaviv. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Chaviv, I, I want to get started right off the top with the question which I'm dying to know about, and that's what's going on in politics in Israel, which is probably going to take three or four hours. The coalition sure. is beginning to <laughs> discover problems. Cracks have begun to develop. Um, do they have a hope of staying alive? Well, um, they're limping from crisis to crisis for a couple of months now. They lost Edith Seliman from the Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, Yamina party. She announced that she was no longer going to uh, vote with the coalition. And that drops a coalition of 61, the narrowest possible majority in our 120-seat Knesset, down to 60. And, and that's a very dangerous place to be. Um, it's not enough to topple the government, because the only way you can topple the government is if the opposition... Uh, can vote 61, has 61 votes to vote in a new government. Now, if, if the opposition doesn't itself have a majority, uh, then we just simply have a minority government. And that's something that existed several times. Barack had it in 2000. Uh, Rabin had it for some period in the 90s. So it's not unheard of, unprecedented, but it makes it extremely difficult to get anything done. The government can survive without passing any bill or doing anything of, of, of use, which is a terrible thing because Israel is a country that needs a lot of reforms and a lot of initiatives have to pass, but it can survive until March of 2023, about 10 more months, um, without having to pass a state budget because it's already budgeted through that period. And, um, and then it has to either pass a state budget with a majority in the Knesset or we go to elections. And so this government has about 10 months of life support. Now, Today, another member of Knesset announced that he's not going to vote with the coalition. He won't topple the coalition, but he's not going to vote with the coalition because he has some issues, uh, very important uh, issues where the, there are uh, cuts being proposed in public uh, transportation and he cares a, very, a great deal about that issue. But uh, the, the substance isn't, isn't our point right now. Um, when, when you're down to 60 seats in 120, every member of Knesset and whatever whim happens to take them, um, can, can torpedo any piece of legislation. And so it's a government that really is so narrow that it's no longer really functional. That's, that's the real problem. Is there, we, we originally, when uh, Bennett came into office, the assumption was, unfortunately, he wasn't going to last very long because of the kind of coalition he had. He's lasted longer and he's pulled some rabbits out of the hat. Is there any rabbit out of the hat that you could foresee? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, you know, in the end, it's a question of math. You put down the, I think it's 12 parties in the Knesset on a piece of paper, you just count them up and you see how you could, you know, put together that puzzle. Um, there are, we well, so, you know, you say the, um, you mentioned correctly that the coalition is really kind of teetering over the edge and has been for a while. 
Um, the opposition is too. Netanyahu um, leads a 54C block of MKs who are loyal to him. But that's not enough because some of the opposition is the Arab uh, joint list of Arab majority parties who don't want to put Netanyahu back into power and won't vote for it. So he needs to pull a party or many MKs, at least seven, I think, out of the current coalition in order to replace the coalition without an election. Um, he discovered today, again, over a Knesset fight about a bill to put a tax on plastic bags that is not the sub is not the, the content isn't isn't interesting, but the ultra-orthodox parties who have caucused with him and, and gone with him into the opposition have been loyal to him for four elections. Um are very don't want this tax. Don't they think it'll disproportionately affect um, you know, poor ultra-orthodox Haredi families? And Netanyahu. Uh, the Likud party, which has a lot of uh, liberal-minded and uh, certainly environmentally-minded members of Knesset, wanted to vote for this tax. And so there was a lot of tension over the course of today in which many ultra-Orthodox MKs said, why have we been loyal to you? This is important to us, and now you won't help us after we went to the opposition for it. So there are a lot of tensions in the coalition, a lot of tensions in the opposition, and there's now a race to see who can peel off you know, the others' least you know, connected uh, parties um, just to either replace the current government or just to survive if you're the current government. It's a very complicated game with many, many players. By the way, did the new tax pass? No. No. Not yet. Not, uh, it's still in process. So, Well, if, without, yeah, without some Likud MKs, it doesn't have a majority because this coalition doesn't have a majority without polling some from the opposition. So they've delayed the vote. Okay, because the Likud couldn't possibly vote with the ruling government right now because just doesn't work that way. We, we, we know some of those things from American politics as well. Unfortunately, I'm not sure who's learning from whom, but it seems to be like they went to the same school. And when it comes to the question of dom the domestic agenda, so that can be stalled, you're saying, if there's no majority. But what Entirely about- Entirely stalled, yeah. But what about an agenda of defense? We're still dealing with Iran and all of the issues there. Is there a quiet agreement there? That is a very good uh, question and a good point. There is a mechanism in the Knesset and an agreement on all sides that there are very, very few sacred issues that none of this can touch. And, and one of those is defense, um, to the point that the defense budget actually has to be written up in a special subcommittee, shared subcommittee of the finance committee and the defense committee. Um, which means it doesn't go through the regular committee channels and it can sit and work quietly and it doesn't put out press releases. And the army has been budgeted through the last four elections over the last three crazy years in which uh, the government, uh, you know, Netanyahu refused to pass a state budget in 2020 for the first time in the history of Israel, just as a way to, to you know, um, uh, not give up his seat for the for Benny Gantz for the rotation. I don't know how much... Uh, our viewers remember all the details of the last four years of political insanity, but um, the defense budget was not hurt. And, 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 and there were special bills passed and, and special committees meeting to, to take care of that. So that is not something that's going to be, uh, that's going to be, you know, in crisis. And how does all of this in your mind impact the American Jewish relationship with Israel? Do you think the, the politics back and forth have a real impact on our support or the growing non-support for Israel among American Jews? I don't know that American Jews follow the, um, the ins and outs of, of Israeli politics. 
A lot of Israelis don't, uh, so I would be surprised if a lot of American Jews do. Um, you know, and, and it works the other way as well. Israelis aren't entirely aware of what's happening in America. You know, amongst themselves, they speak Hebrew, of course. Uh, for example, when Barack Obama was first elected president, he had something like 70% favorability in Israel. He, he was a rock star and he was cool and he could dance. And then Trump was elected and he had 70% favorability in Israel because he said he liked us. You know, and so Israelis are a little bit provincial and speak Hebrew and don't follow closely the American culture wars and, and politics. But I'll tell you where I think it does have an effect. Um, we have a political system that for the last few years, maybe for the last decade, on fundamental questions that do matter in American politics, whether it is the Palestinians, whether it is Iran, um, and, there, and there are a few others, um, religion and state, has been unable to move the needle in any direction, has not had majorities for, um, you know, annexation or withdrawal, a peace process, uh, or, you know, a military strike on Iran, or, um, you know, to solve any of these problems one way or the other without taking sides on the solutions. On religion and state, uh, this is um, our recent coalitions have passed, have voted to approve a compromise um, at the Kotel, at the Western Wall, in which there would be a plaza for liberal movements, and then rescinded that decision, and then sort of went back and forth and managed to upset everybody. Um, and so we, we, we are living through a period of a kind of political paralysis caused by um, some of these institutes, the fact that our elections are so close, the fact that uh, Netanyahu has introduced a certain kind of politics and his opponents have introduced a certain kind of politics against him. And so we're living through a political paralysis that I think does affect the relationship. Um, if you come to the Israeli coalition today, the government, and you say, hey, what, what happens to the Palestinians? What, what is Israel's vision for the future? The answer is that literally every Israeli opinion is represented in the current government. And so the current government has, because it has every voice, it has no voice. Um, and I think that does, I think that does affect the relationship. And do we, has Israel found a way to reach out to the American Jewish community um, to try to explain, or is Israel still, I'm sorry to use the term, fumbling with it a bit? Um, I think Israel is very bad at explaining itself. I think it has always been. I think it's part of Israel's DNA. Um, Israel is founded on a, a, a Zionist vision. Um, Theodore Herzl, who says that, you know, dependence, being dependent on others is, is a great path to inevitable catastrophe. And he actually used the word catastrophe for what he thought would happen if the Jews stayed in Europe, right? And he's writing in the 1890s. And, um, and that created in the Zionist movement, deep, deep within the Zionist movement and ethos um, that continues to this day in Israeli politics that says that you don't explain yourself. You don't come to the rest of the world, to, to, to the Gentiles, so to speak, and beg them to understand you or respect you or appreciate your concerns or things like that. And so Israelis are very bad at what we call Hasbara, which is just a Hebrew word that means explaining, but has been used to mean public diplomacy. When people are criticizing it, it means propaganda. Um, but Israelis are just very, very bad at doing it and at engaging foreign audiences with their views, with their messages. I'll give you an example. The government established a cabinet level committee, a cabinet level ministry uh, to deal with Hasbara uh, in the 80s and closed it within a year because nobody could figure out what it's supposed to do. And then it reestablished it in the 2010s. And then 
closed it and then opened it again and now closed it for this government. And so we don't engage, we don't explain. We have a diaspora minister, but it's not clear what the, his ministry does. We have a diaspora department in the foreign ministry, but they don't actually talk to the American Jewish diaspora. The American Jewish diaspora comes here and yells at us. And so we have a conversation, but, um, but it's not a conversation in which we're really talking and thinking about how we're seen in the rest of the Jewish world. Um, so I, I think that's something very old and longstanding and, and it's a problem, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. Well, it's a massive problem that we have as well in the sense that we view the state of Israel as our state of Israel. And yet we don't vote, we don't serve, and yet we expect Israel to do the right thing. And then we have this tension when we think Israel didn't do the right thing, are we allowed to speak out or are we being disloyal to Israel if we speak out against something that Israel is doing? It's uh, shifted in the last decade or so, but going back a couple of decades, American Jewish leadership would never speak out against the Israeli government, but here it happens now. Um, is that something just the reality of the world? Is it part of the maturity of the state of Israel and American Jewry? I think, so. look, a few years ago, um, I wish I could remember the exact line, but um, Barack Obama made some, some, some statement um, that was very surprising to me. He said Israelis, he, he was complaining about Netanyahu at the time, and he, Netanyahu gave him some cause to complain. And he said, Israelis need to hearken back to their liberal roots, to the times of, of Golda Meir and David Ben-Gurion. And, and he was saying it in frustration at the rightward turn of Israeli politics under Netanyahu. But to us Israelis, that was a very surprising statement because Israel is more liberal today by every imaginable measure than it was in the 70s under Golda or in the 50s under, under Ben-Gurion. Um, and, and so there's this sense that it isn't that Obama's understanding of Israel, and I think most American understandings of Israel um, are to some significant extent drawn from the American Jewish conversation on Israel. And the American Jewish conversation on Israel has awakened from an Israel that never really existed, an Israel that had no problems, an Israel that was all perfection and, and, and apple pie, to a real Israel, a country which makes every mistake in the book. You know, uh, America just pulled out of 19 years in Afghanistan without knowing why it stuck around for so long, right? Well, we in 2000 pulled out of 18 years in Lebanon, not quite sure why we stuck around for so long. We're, we're countries, countries make mistakes and we made those mistakes. Um, that awakening to the sense that we're a real country and not a moral cartoon uh, has been painful and has driven a kind of feeling that you know, even though Israel now has widespread gay pride parades, even though every minority in Israel is more integrated, has more access to more institutions, there's a lot more attention, a lot more funding, uh, the neglect of minorities that was the true, that was sort of there in the 50s and 60s is not there anymore, certainly not to that extent. That's not to say the problems are solved, but everything is being worked on, everything is getting better, and the conversation is only getting worse. Um, some of that, I think it's driven by just despair over the Palestinian question. Some of it is driven just by suddenly learning that we're a real country and that being a trauma that at the American Jewish conversation maybe hasn't really, we're still amazing in all the ways we used to be amazing. It's still a little bit miraculous that we built what we built out of a bunch of refugees. Um, but, but there's this awakening to a real Israel 
that that is a little bit about growing up. You know, you grow up, you find out your parents uh, have mistakes. Not that we're the parents and the American Jews are the children, but I mean, we grow up as siblings and discover the other one has has faults. I'll stop talking there just because um, <laughs> I've been talking a lot, but um, I think that's a lot of the dynamic and, and I don't know how to solve it. Learn more about each other is the answer. And, and Israel has been doing it by sending people to the United States. I just met with the mayor of Beit Shemesh recently and her staff because trying to understand and trying to get create partnerships as well. It's complicated, obviously. There, there are two issues also politically in Israel that, I, that we talk about. One you mentioned earlier, and that is religion and state, and also the activist Supreme Court, uh, which seems to be sometimes the legislative body when the legislative body of the Knesset doesn't want to get, can't act or doesn't want to get involved. Um, can we turn over to the Supreme Court for a moment? Is there, are there things happening where because Bennett's coalition doesn't have the votes that the Supreme Court is going to make some decisions that people may or may not like? Anything on the horizon? Um, I think, yeah, I think the criticism of the Supreme Court, uh, which is, Interesting, important, uh, in many cases valid, our Supreme Court might be the most powerful in the free world. And so, you know, it's a, it's a left-right uh, culture war here. Um, but uh, I do think both sides have a great case. Uh, I don't always think that. In this case, I think they do. Um, the Supreme Court has seen a lot of this growing criticism of its activism and has reined it in over the last few years. They're also um, over the last couple of years, right-wing governments have appointed some more right-wing judges. And so there is also a sense that the court has become a little bit less activist, wanted a less activist role. So I think a lot of those questions have a little bit tamped down. Um, uh, and I say that with the caveat that um, our Supreme Court functions as two courts. One is the highest uh, appeals court, like like yours, but we also have a court of equity called Bagats, the High Court of Justice. It's the same judges in the same building, but anybody can appeal to them um, against any action of any branch of the Israeli state, including the army. Palestinians can appeal against the army. I can appeal against some traffic cop um, if I think that there's some, some injustice being done. The Supreme Court, as the High Court of Justice, as that court of equity, hears about 5,000 cases a year. Um, as, an, as a court of appeals, it hears, I don't know what, a few dozen like, like your court. But, but um, And so um, there are always things coming up on the docket. And if you catch a more liberal judge, it'll be a more activist answer. And, uh, and, and so the answer is always. Um, but there has been a, a trend, a noticeable trend uh, toward less activism. Yeah. Because I, one of the things that came up in the recent controversy regarding the proposals on changing the, the structure of conversion in the, in the chief rabbinate was, if we don't legislate this, then what will end up happening is the bagats, the Supreme Court will make a determination on how this will be managed. And it may not be the way we want it. It may not be under the chief rabbinate because the chief rabbinate only has the right for to oversee conversion because of its right to oversee marriages, those kinds of things. In, in the 1990s, yeah, in religion and state, this is a very fascinating point because there are questions of rights, of competing rights, and they have to come up. There's no choice. They, they, they necessarily come up. There, was a, 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 there were cases in the 1990s, the example of accepting reform and conservative converts for, for Aliyah. The state of Israel, the interior ministry of the state of Israel needs to know if a reform convert or a conservative convert 
um, whether they consider themselves to have been converted halachically, or in the reform case, they openly don't believe that conversion is should be a halachic process, but an educational one. Does the state of Israel recognize them as Jews and grant them citizenship? What's how do how do we grapple with not knowing? All the all Jews don't agree on whether they're Jews. So now do are they Jews? Do they get the right of return? And um the liberal movements in Israel, the reforming conservative movements, went to the Supreme Court for a decade in the 90s and begged the court to say these people can make Aliyah because they were unable to make Aliyah. And, and the country, this country, its constitutional order classifies the right of return as fundamental to the identity of the state. And so you have to, this is a right given to these people. And so you have to decide whether they get it or don't get it. They don't live in limbo forever and ever, right? And the court kept refusing to rule for years and case after case after case. But the Israeli Knesset was so unable to solve this basic question because there were cultural divides and religious divides and some parties were for and some parties were against and they were militantly for and against. And so the Knesset couldn't resolve it. And so the court came up with an answer that tried to thread the needle between all the different positions. And what it said was, look, we don't, we're a civil court. We don't know if this person is Jewish or not Jewish halakhically. That is not our, that is not our wheelhouse. But for the purposes of immigration, we will recognize the conversion is Jewish if a Jewish community recognized by the state of Israel as a Jewish community recognizes them as Jewish. So it, so to speak, reinterpreted the law of return as not just an individual right, but as a communal right. And if a community recognizes someone as one of their own, a Jewish community that we already know is a Jewish community recognizes a person as one of their own, then they can make aliyah. So reform and conservative converts for all practical purposes, as long as they didn't just invent out of whole cloth a conservative synagogue that never existed before that no one's ever heard of, can make aliyah. Now they're not written as Jewish in the rabbinate, but they are written down as Jewish for the law return in the interior ministry. That's an example of how the Supreme Court has wrestled with these issues. The rabbinate is right to be worried. The court might intervene, but even at its most activist, the 90s court, the court of Barak was the, the epitome of Israeli activist courts. It tries to thread these very complicated needles um, between competing rights. And so I, 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 um, I think they should legislate. These are questions properly solved in a legislature, not a court. Um, but also I think the court, the fear of the court is a little, is a little over, overdrawn. It's, it's not, it hasn't delivered terrible, evil, you know, rulings that have been against what everybody wants or anything like that, which is sometimes the rhetoric you hear on the right. And going back to the political state in Israel itself, the, the, Typical Israeli, what's number one on their agenda for their politicians? Is it like America, a domestic agenda, uh, making sure prices aren't too high? Is it defense? Is it the the one or two state solution, the, the question of the Palestinians? What What's really driving Israelis today? Um, I, I think this, the most um, um, quotidian um, common uh, domestic agenda is what really matters. Um, and you see that when you see how the opposition and coalition fight, they will fight terribly about all kinds of symbolic things. But when it comes to simple, straightforward, taking care of the economy, making sure that you know we get um, enough um, 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 uh, coronavirus checks or uh, things like that, or whether the schools open or don't open or how we handle the most fundamental things. Those are places where we do see coalition opposition cooperation, even in this moment 
when these two sides really profoundly don't like each other and are, and are really at each other's throats. So I think the Israeli voter really needs to see the country function um, and isn't willing to let this politics, you know, careen out of control and really hurt uh, the bottom line. So the politics that we hear about in the United States, you know, uh, APAC has changed the way they approach the Iranian threat, but that's still very high on the APAC agenda, whether it's classic APAC or now their super PAC that they created. Um, the issues of religion and state that's very high on the agenda for a segment of the, of the American Jewish population as well. Those aren't the things that people really vote about in Israel. When they go to the polls and they vote Likud, or, they, or they'll vote for, for any of the other parties, they're ready to vote more to make sure that uh, inflation doesn't rise too high, that there's safety in the schools or things like that. You know, it's very interesting. Um, I don't think any of the things you mentioned come up in elections. Um, there is a culture in Israel um, that has a deep faith in expertise. And so, for example, we don't have an argument in our politics about the, the healthcare system because voters don't know how to build a healthcare system is the sort of assumption of the voters. You hire economists and you hire doctors and you put them in a room and they come out with a healthcare system. And if it doesn't work, you force them to go back into that room. And we've had, we have universal healthcare, it's affordable. Um, and uh, it has had several major reforms uh, over the last few years. It's not the subject of, of, uh, of politics. Um, neither is, for example, school safety or things like that. Gun control, we don't debate that. We don't debate abortion. We don't debate all, any of those. Those are all things that are handed to committees of experts and they solve. And if there's a problem, we go back to the experts and complain, but we let them solve uh, those issues. Israelis vote mostly when there's a crisis like the pandemic or or like uh, some you know recession or something like that then they'll vote their pocketbooks they'll vote their their immediate needs but most of the time when they don't feel an urgency they vote their identities so if you look at our at our political system we have parties that represent essentially cultural tribes we have a, a, a the shas party is the haredi or ultra orthodox sephardi party the united Torah judaism party is the ultra orthodox Ashkenazi party, there, there is a, a Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party represents left-leaning liberal Tel Aviv-based secularists. Uh, you know, the Likud party uh, is, uh, enjoys a large majority among Mizrahim, among the Jews from the Arab world. We have these cultural tribes in Israel and our political system reflects those cultural tribes. So if I had to say that outside of moments of real crisis, when Israelis vote on the crisis, I would say that Israelis vote tribally. Um, and that's, by the way, true also among the Arabs. The Arab parties divide into the more religious conservative party, into the more secular progressive party, that also our constituents live in different parts of the country, just like the Jews. It works exactly the same way. And we're running out of time, but one final thing to talk about, and it's a big topic, I apologize, is Ukraine and the shift in Israel's role. We've been hearing Prime Minister Bennett tried to be the grand peacemaker, did not condemn. And then we hear at the same time, Lapid taking stronger positions, almost like good cop, bad cop. Is this going to continue to evolve or are those two positions, those two approaches gonna continue because of the large Russian population in Israel, the concerns of Israel relationship with Russia in general? Where do you think it will head? I'll tell you, it's very interesting. Um, the large, what we call Russian population, 
um, about a third of them are Ukrainians. And the Russian Russians um, are a little embarrassed. And so the existence of a large Russian-speaking population in Israel has actually been a pressure on the government to lean toward Ukraine more, more clearly. Israel is, um, there, was a, uh, there was actually, there were conversations between Israeli and Russian officials in which the Israeli officials said to the Russians, you know, look, we need you in Syria. You're the major military force in Syria. Iran is moving weapons through there to Hezbollah. It is part of our fundamental military needs, security needs. We need to work together with you in Syria. So we don't, we don't want to get in the way of something that will literally cost Israeli lives in an immediate way. Also, we belong to the West and we have to belong to the West and we want to belong to the West and we will feel we have betrayed ourselves if we don't belong to the West. So in the end, we're on the West side, just if that's not clear to you. And that was a, a literal conversation between very senior Israeli and Russian officials. And then the Russian officials responded and they said, you know, there's an old Soviet joke. And the old Soviet joke is that there was a man who um, snitched to the KGB about all of his friends. And then he, he dies and he goes to uh, purgatory and in purgatory they say, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? And, and he says, well, I'd like to go to heaven. And they say, oh, no, no, you are definitely going to hell. And he said, why? And they said, you snitched on all your friends to the KGB. And he said, it was the Soviet Union. Everybody snitched to their friends in the KGB. And they said, yeah, but you came running. You were at the front of the class begging to, right? The Russian request of Israel has been, please don't be at the front of the class. Please don't be the leading, right? That, that's it. And, and, and that also makes you a very useful conduit. Think about the Israeli prime minister, any Israeli prime minister, not just Bennett. If it had been Netanyahu, it would have been the same. The Israeli prime minister has very close ties with Vladimir Putin, with the Kremlin, with the Russian military, with Ukraine, with the Ukrainian military, with America, with the European Union headquarters in Brussels, with NATO, we do literal war games together, um, there probably isn't another world leader that has that open door and that basic trust in every one of those players. Um, and so it was also worthwhile in that sense. The Ukrainians were actually getting Israeli briefings on what they think in the Kremlin uh, over the course of this war. They had a problem with the Ukrainians. They were talking to Russian negotiators but the Russian negotiators were terrified because the Russian negotiators are watching their dictator get angrier and angrier. And when he gets angry, he throws them under the bus, not himself. And so the, the, the Russian negotiators were self-censoring themselves in the negotiations in a way that made the Ukrainians go to the Israelis to ask the Israelis to talk to the Russians quietly so that they could have this roundabout negotiation because of how dysfunctional the Kremlin really is under Vladimir Putin. And so you have all of these interesting, complicated dynamics all working at once, which translates into Israel being quiet and a lot of criticism of Israel for being quiet by people who I think don't understand how any of this stuff works. Uh, I mean, when a senator says it or something like that. So it was a very, very interesting uh, dynamic. Uh, the Russians have, uh, have gone a little bit over the deep end. They've also started to uh, limit Israeli cooperation in Syria. They've gotten angry at Israel as Israel has been a little bit more voiced it's sided with Ukraine, sent Ukraine uh, some defensive measures, not yet weapons. So, um, so that might be falling apart now, but that's what has been happening up until now.
On that note, and it's a fascinating note, I thank you so very much, Chavi, for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I hope we'll have opportunities to do so in the future. And I know that many who are be listening to this will also be reading your analysis of what's going on. Thank you so very much. Have a wonderful Thank evening. you for having me. Bye-bye.